Well, here we are again in 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's turn there, if you would please, with me. Even though we put the scriptures up on the screen, it's always good to keep the habit and the practice of using your Bibles. So um, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn there. 2 Peter chapter 3. Now we left off last week in verse 4. We're picking it up in verse 5. But I'm going to read starting with verse 3. So we just get rolling back into our context once again. So verse 3, Peter says, knowing this first. And so we discuss the fact that in terms of the last days, and that's what Peter is launching into now in this section, in this passage, uh, he's talking about eschatology, which is the study of the last days, the end times. Virtually every New Testament writer discusses the subject of the last days. Even though, as we just talked about last week, many people, even within the church, would prefer not to talk about the last days. And yet, as I showed you from the Scriptures last week, it's very important to God that His children are focused on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Imminent meaning it could happen at any moment. Now, before we read any further, let me once again point out there are different camps within the church regarding what we refer to as the rapture, the catching away of the saints, being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, that is a fact that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, First Thessalonians. But there is some disagreement as to when that will happen. As you carefully study eschatology, and we've spent a lot of time in this church doing that, we know that the day of the Lord, with a big D, the Bible speaks in many places of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not just one day. The day of the Lord is a series of events. Now, if you believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, which is what we believe at Calvary Chapel, then that would be the trigger point for the day of the Lord. You see, man has had his day for the last 6,000 years, and we've proven, although many people still won't admit it or recognize it, we've proven to ourselves that we're not capable of running this place. Only God is. So the age of man is about to come to an end. The day of the Lord is upon us. And I believe the, the rapture will be the trigger point, which will then initiate the beginning of the seven-year period of tribulation upon the earth, then the second coming. You see, the rapture is not the second coming. And some have described it this way. The rapture is the Lord coming for His saints, caught up to meet Him in the air. The second coming is the Lord coming with His saints. As we read about in Revelation 19, the book of Jude, Behold, He comes. Quoting from Enoch, Jude writes, Behold, He comes with thousands upon thousands of His saints. And in Revelation 19, we read that we all come back with Jesus riding on white horses. Hence, I'm getting ready. <laughs> Got my boots. For those non-equestrians, we will all soon be equestrians. The day of the Lord. The end times. One third of all 
Scripture, well, 25 to 30% of all Scripture is prophetic in nature. That's a pretty big deal. So Peter tells us in, with relationship, in relation to the last days, know this first. And I talked about this last week. Every generation of Christians has been believing and looking for Christ to come in their generation. But for the first time in human history, my observation is that it almost seems like there's more people not looking for his return, even within the church. A lot of people get real uncomfortable when you start talking about these things. They're not that excited about Christ coming again. They want to try to fix this place first. That ain't never going to happen. And so, perhaps for the first time in the history of the church, the last 2,000 years, many believers or those who identify as believers, and perhaps more than ever those outside the church, there seems to be a, a full-scale denial of the return of Christ. Peter says... Know this first, scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they will willfully forget. This they willfully forget. Remember that. That by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. See, the reason that, that many people, many preachers, many teachers, many people under the umbrella of the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, avoid teaching through the scriptures, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. It's a lot more comfortable and a lot easier to pick a verse here, pick a verse there, and create a nice flowery message. Because if you really read through the Bible, verse by verse, there's a lot of words which really upset people. The stuff I just read, it's pretty heavy. The heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire. We don't want to talk about setting things on fire, do we? Until the day of judgment. We don't want to talk about judgment, do we? That's harsh. God is a God of love. But you see, the love of God is not like the love of man. The love of God is perfect. Therefore, perfect love requires not only redemption, salvation, forgiveness, but in some cases, judgment. We're living in a time where people are really not willing to look at that, deal with that, acknowledge that. Hence, all the craziness going on all around us. Until the day of judgment and perdition. Ooh, there's another very uncomfortable word. You may not know what it means, but it just sounds bad. Perdition of ungodly men. Ungodly men? Wait a minute, aren't we all created in God's image? Aren't we all God's children? No, you're not, we're not. We're not a child of God until we choose to embrace Him 
as the creator of all things and embrace his son as the savior of our souls. Then the first chapter of John tells us to as many as received him, to as many as believed on his name, he gave the right to become a son of God, a child of God. It's a right bestowed upon us by God. But today, see how subtle the enemy is. Everybody thinks they have a right to anything and everything, right? Just because you exist. No, you don't. I could get a little political here for a moment if I wanted to. <laughs> Nobody seems to understand anymore that citizens of any given nation have rights that other people don't. If you want to have the rights, you become a citizen. If you want to have the rights that God bestows, you become a citizen of heaven. I'm just preaching through the introduction. I don't know how this is going to work out. Although I did get a better start today. No monologue. Verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. By the way, if citizens of a certain nation or kingdom have no more rights than a non-citizen, then what is the purpose of becoming a citizen? And if God's children are no more blessed than the ones that are not His children, why become a child of God? Is that a valid question? Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your Word. It is awesome. It is amazing. It's incredible because You wrote it. We ask you to bless this time of study today. We pray that once again you would illuminate and enlighten us, give us greater insight and understanding into a passage which I'm sure most, if not all of us, have already read before. But as Peter has emphasized repeatedly, we are to be reminded. And in the reminding, we actually learn more. So we ask you to teach us today. You are the good shepherd. You feed your sheep. We ask you to feed us now with the manna of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, why would they become scoffers? According to Peter, for this they willfully forget. Now, you can't forget something you've never known. Personally, I believe Peter is referring to, at the very least, so-called believers as the scoffers in this passage. Certainly, the world is full of scoffers, but that shouldn't surprise anybody. But what should surprise people is when people within the church scoff. Paul, I believe, is also referring to so-called believers in 2 Timothy 3, which we read last week, and I'm going to read it again today. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. But know this, that in the last days... Do you think the guys that wrote the New Testament believed in the last days? Therefore, shouldn't every believer believe in the last days? That it's a real thing. This world as we now know it is not just going to go on forever and ever and ever. Amen. Perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves. 
Oh, none of that going on today. Are you kidding me? Lovers of money. Oh, no way. Boasters. Uh-uh. Proud. Blasphemers. Oh, yeah. All bets are off now when it comes to the true, the true God, the creator of all things. All bets are off when it comes to Jesus Christ. Don't you dare badmouth Muhammad or any other false religious leader. But Jesus, open season, right? Blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Oh, no. Little angels everywhere you go. <laughs> Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty. Wow, quite a list. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Mm-hmm. Yes, sirree, Bob. Every kind of pleasure you can think of. My wife and I attended a couple of athletic events yesterday for our grandsons. And it just struck me how people's entire lives, apart from when they go to work, are dedicated to sports, recreation, anything and everything except the worship of God. And I thought I saw all these vehicles driving out of the parking lot there at the ball field, and I thought, this is their religion. I mean, some of these people were there from early in the morning till sunset. Little kids playing double headers. I don't know if any of them did triple headers. But just their whole entire Saturday dedicated to that. And again, there's nothing wrong with athletics and sports. Kids can learn some good things. It's good for their physical well-being to get out and get exercise and compete. But it is a religion today. And multiple worship services will be held in front of the TV set and in the sports bars today as the NFL once again brings what little it has left to the table. But it never ends. Can you even imagine? Here he goes. And I watch, I, I watch the Broncos, that's it. I don't watch any other sports. Nothing else interests me. Again, the occasional event involving my grandsons. But even my wife and I beat ourselves up sometime because the other grandparents... They're there for everything, all the time. And we don't go that much because our lives don't revolve around that stuff. We love our grandkids, but we got a little more important things to do than go sit out and watch them play baseball all day. And hopefully, thankfully, none of my family members are watching. <laughs> Not that we don't love our grandkids. Can you imagine all the resources that are poured into all this stuff if those, oh gosh, all we hear all day long from the snowflakes and the hot chocolate crowd, the Play-Doh kids, is how what a horrible country we have, how unjust it is, how lacking in compassion we are. But can you imagine... If all the resources that are channeled into this false religion, 
of entertainment and recreation and sports was channeled in to the feeding of the poor, right? Helping the homeless. Can you imagine? I don't even want to hear anymore about the poor people in America when they're spending billions of dollars on this garbage. Don't even talk to me about it. Hey, sell your season tickets and go give the money to the poor, buddy. What do you think of that? See, that's what happens when man operates in his own fleshly compassion, his own fleshly understanding. All he does is live out a lie of contradictions and hypocrisy. Just the way we have such a great concern for the protection of the animals and the environment. PETA and Greenpeace and so forth. But then we turn around, not we, but many, and just salivate over the idea of aborting another baby. Let's kill them! Kill them all day long! Kill as many as you want. But we better not dare touch the hair of a porcupine or a rabbit or a squirrel or a dog or a cat. Buddy, you're going to jail! But we'll kill the babies all day long every day. That's the deception, the hypocrisy, the deception of the, of the human race right there. Wow, I had no idea this was going to go there. They willfully forget. Not only did Paul and Peter and Jude and the others refer to the last days to apostasy. I didn't get through this, did I? Verse 5. Having a form of godliness. That's why I think both Peter and Paul are talking about believers or so-called believers, people who identify as believers. You wouldn't expect to, a non-believer to have a form of godliness, would you? No. But Paul tells Timothy, these folks will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Well, we know Jesus died on the cross for us, but we still need some heavy medication to make it through. And I'm not criticizing people who take medication. You got to do what you got to do. But sometimes we, are caref we have to be careful that we don't totally deny the power of God to do a healing work in our hearts and our minds. Because He is strong enough. He is big enough. Amen. The power to heal physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. The power to save but we, if, we, if we're afraid to talk about the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, confession, repentance, talk about sin, then you're denying the power, are you not? Paul said the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. But we have to be careful not to offend anybody. I'm telling you what, when they go to hell, they're going to be really offended. And they're going to be offended at any believer that had the opportunity to tell them the truth and didn't do it. That's an offense we should be concerned about. Have a, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Oh, and this is, oh, this is so bad. This is so nasty. This is so hurtful. I just can't go there. From such people turn away. I can't do that. They're my friends. They're my family. I don't care if they are deceived. I can't turn away from them. Well, then I guess you can't obey God. Because God says turn away from them. 
Because if you don't, they're going to think they're okay and they're all right. The purpose of turning away is to hopefully they will wake up. You can pray for them, but if you coddle them, they'll never come to the truth. We're destroying the youth of our nation because for several generations now, we've told them that anything and everything they want to do is okay. They're not to blame. We are. For not leading them in the right direction. You've got teachers doing everything that we would have told our kids not to do. Every kind of inappropriate sexual activity, drugs, alcohol, pornography, you name it. If that's what the educators are steeped in, what do you expect to happen with the kids? Jesus referred to apostasy, Matthew 24, 11. Then many false prophets will rise up. When? In the last days. This is a last days passage, Matthew 24. And will deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Again, I think Jesus is talking about many in the church. Because he says next, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Lawlessness. A disregard for the law of God, the word of God, the truth of God's word. The seeker-friendly, purpose-driven, emergent church. Do whatever you want, be whatever you want. As long as you speak the name of Jesus, everything's okay. But true love, agape love, God's love, unconditional love, will grow cold. And it will be replaced by human, fleshly love. Lovers of pleasure, as we read in 2 Timothy 3, rather than lovers of God. Luke 18, verse 18, the second half of the verse. Nevertheless, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Leading up to the second coming, true faith will all but disappear from the earth. That's what the Bible says. They willfully forget, Peter writes. Now, just for sake of argument, regardless of whether Peter is referring to so-called believers or non-believers, the point is that in the last days, people will willfully forget their, their unbelief is a choice. And I've made this point more than once. Anybody who says they can't believe, I don't believe that's completely honest. I believe if you want to believe, you can believe. It's a choice. You can rationally, logically, intelligently look at the evidence for a divine creator. You can look at the evidence of the Son of God and His impact on the world and the fact that for 2,000 years... No one's ever been able to disprove his resurrection, and yet literally millions of people have died for that resurrection. If we know that it's not just a matter of intellect, it's also a matter of the heart. But even if you approach it from a purely intellectual position, it makes a whole lot more sense to believe than to not believe. It's a choice. They willfully forget. And so sometimes we have to hold people's feet to the fire on that and call them out on their baloney. 
They willfully forget what? That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. They choose to forget that God is the creator of all things. And they find ways to help themselves forget, like Darwinism, which, by the way, has only been around for about 150 years. A little more, 150, 170 years. Darwinism. When they willfully forget that God is the creator of all things, they have to come up with alternative means by which this world came into existence. Now they're shying away from Darwinism because it's proven to be such a hoax. And now the aliens planted our DNA here. Boy, we're really progressing, aren't we? We're getting smarter and smarter. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... That big inning was a big one. God created the heavens and the earth. Remember Peter said, knowing this first, it all starts within the beginning and it all ends in terms of this present age with the return of Christ. Romans, I'm going to read from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 and then verse 28. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You lost me right there. We can't talk about the wrath of God. We can't talk about ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Yes, we can, and we will. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Does that sound a lot like they willfully forget? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God forbid that any of our young people should find out the truth. That God really did create us. That Darwin's full of baloney. Darwin was the guy who was mad at God and looking for a way to get back at God. And that's a fact of history. And so he came up with this bogus alternative called evolution. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You can talk about witchcraft in our schools. You can talk about Islam in our schools. You can talk about homosexuality, transgenderism, you can talk about anything and everything you want. Excuse the math and the English and the history and all that. We kind of put that on the back burner. God forbid that any of our young people should know the true history of our nation and how it was founded and how important our Constitution is. God forbid they should know that. What got under his saddle? For since the creation of the world, here it is again with Paul in Romans, creation. And that's why the devil has fought so hard to destroy the understanding of people regarding creationism. That God is the creator. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. What? Invisible attributes, but they're clearly seen? Being understood by the things which are made. Again, if only we had some logic and some reason and some rationality in the world today. It's the most amazing thing. I was out walking in the foothills up here of the Sandias. All of a sudden, a violent storm arose. The lightning began to strike. Wind, rain, lightning. The lightning struck a particular rock. It metamorphosed into metal. And before all was said and done, this microphone appeared. 
I was so amazed. And here, all along, I thought somebody in a factory somewhere made this thing. It turns out that's not the case. Things just magically appear out of nowhere. Same thing happened with my podium. Lightning struck a tree up in the Manzanos. Actually, I was struck by lightning in the Manzanos while riding my motorcycle. Oh, now, now we get it, right? Now we understand. It doesn't take a lot of intelligence, logic, reason to realize that everything has a maker, a creator. Nothing around us would exist unless somebody made it. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God is so mean, he's so nasty, just sending people to hell, and they're without excuse, because although they knew God, that's why it's so easy to reach children for Christ, and that's why children's ministry is so important. That's why we need to pray for more kids in our church. Because to the untarnished child, the unpolluted child, the child who has not yet gone through our public educational system, when you tell that little child, Jesus is the Son of God and He died on the cross for your sins, they get all excited. And yes, they can understand on a very basic level and that's all you need in fact Jesus said we need to become like them childlike faith it's so easy to reach kids for Christ because their minds have not yet been turned and burned by this world although they knew God and it's sad how many young people and how many children in our nation today know nothing about God nothing about Jesus Christ. They probably know more about transgenderism than they know about the Bible. Do you think I'm not telling the truth? Because I am. They, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now we begin to see where the scoffers are going to come from and where they have come from because they're here amongst us even now. Verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Now there's an interesting thought. We all know that in order to become a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to invite Him into our lives, into our heart. We need to acknowledge Him. We need to open the door. But in some regard, that is necessary because we have first already kicked them out. They did not retain the knowledge of God. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Why? Because when you retain God in your knowledge, that means you have to worship Him. You have to serve Him. You have to do His will, not yours. If you don't want to yield your life over to God, then you're probably not going to like retaining the knowledge of God. And again, so it comes back to choice. Oh, I tried that whole God thing. didn't work for me. Yeah, really? What was that whole God thing? 
where you expected him to be your Disneyland daddy and your heavenly Santa Claus? You expected him to bow down and serve you? Was that the God thing that you tried? Or did you try laying down your life and following Christ, taking up your cross and following him like he said? If you try that God thing, I think it'll work. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And if you go on in that passage, the debased things that are not fitting are the things that are happening all around us right now. That's the result of what we read here. Back to 2 Peter 3, 5. We're still in that first verse there. And the earth, standing out of water and in the water... By the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. I think Peter knew the Old Testament. Genesis 1.9, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Notice that everything God did in creation came about as a result of him speaking it into existence. That's what I call power. And then in verse 6, he goes on, by which the world, by which he's referring to the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So this is an obvious reference to Noah's flood. And we'll see in a moment why he throws this in there. So he's going back over the creation how there was water, the separation of the water from the dry land. And then at the time of Noah, God used the water to destroy that world and start fresh. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, the same word that God spoke when he created all things, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now there's a theological term for what Peter is talking about here. It's called divine fiat. Not the Italian automobile. Divine fiat, that means divine word, spoken. God created all things by divine fiat, by the spoken word. The fact that God spoke all things into existence, and by his word, they're all held together. Now, that's an interesting thought. How many of us really ponder that from time to time? All that God has to do is speak the word and everything that we now know just flies apart. It's done. It's over. Genesis 1-3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. This phrase occurs at least eight times in Genesis 1. Then God said, describing the various elements of creation, all accomplished by his spoken word. Colossians 1-17. He, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So once again, confirming, in spite of the fact that many would try to deny it, that Jesus is God. And Jesus holds all things together. Sounds like a guy you ought to get to know. A guy you ought to love and not blaspheme or besmirch like many are doing today. Read the first a few verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word, the Logos. He's the creator of all things. 
and by him all things are held together. So these things, which are now preserved, the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire. Now God promised Noah that he would never again destroy the world with water, right? The rainbow, the Noahic covenant, which has now been co-opted by a particular group. The rainbow. But he did not promise that he would never destroy it again. He just promised he wouldn't use water this time. These things are reserved for fire until the day of judgment. This is the day of judgment of the ungodly, which will come after the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. In the meantime, they, the unrighteous, will be held in a place of temporary punishment in Hades. Then the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20 where you and I will be sitting on thrones with Christ, participating in that judgment. So they're reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Perdition, we mentioned the word earlier, it is literally hell. Judas was called the son of perdition because he allowed Satan to enter him that he might betray Christ. The Antichrist is referred to also as the son of perdition, the son of hell. Well, if you're the son of hell, guess who your daddy is? Noah Webster's definition of perdition. Noah Webster, 1828 Dictionary. The utter loss of the soul or of final happiness in a future state, future misery or eternal death. The impenitent sinner is condemned to final perdition. Thank you, Noah Webster. Now, I want to take a side note here for a moment and address the issue that perhaps some in this room might be having thoughts about. Many that are not here in this room certainly have had thoughts about them. Why does he have to get so extreme? Why can't he just tone it down a little bit? Why can't he preach in such a way that more people would be inclined to stay. I'll tell you why. Because I know for a fact that all of us are bombarded daily by the lies and the deceptions of the enemy. And he isn't God, but he's no dummy. And when you see how many people, we've been talking about this a lot, under the umbrella of the church, are being deceived. And they're buying into the whole gay agenda, the transgender agenda, the abortion agenda. You know there are Christians that do believe it's okay to get an abortion? We are becoming so engulfed with these things. Maybe I'm wrong. But I have about an hour on Sunday mornings to try to shatter that garbage that's been, you've been cocooned in and try to help keep you awake. And I have a sneaking suspicion that when I get to heaven, God's not going to ask me, well, how many people did you have in your church? Oh, really? That's all? Gosh, you, uh, Gary, you were kind of a loser, weren't you? You mean you didn't have a mega church? Okay, guys, would you show him that little guest house away in the back there? 
the little tiny one, and get him a case of spam. <laughs> now, okay, Peter, I want you to take these megachurch guys over here, and I want you to get him a case of Omaha steaks. And I want you to put them in one of my best mansions. Because they had thousands upon thousands of people in their church. And as the creator of all things, that was my number one concern, is how big was their church? You think that's what I'm going to encounter when I get to heaven? I don't think so either. And yet that's what the thinking of most people today in the church is. It's all about the numbers. It's all about how comfortable it is. Don't want to rock the boat. Don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Oh, but gee, if they don't make it to heaven, that's not my fault. Actually, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I have the blood of no man on my hands. Can all these guys say that? I don't know. It's between them and God. But I'm just telling you why I do what I do. The number one reason I do it is because God won't let me not do it. I've tried many times. The only other thing I could think of would be some heavy medication. <laughs> and I'm not going to do that because I don't need it. You might think I do. I think I don't. Okay, here's another one of Peter's big things. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days saying, where's the promise of his coming? Verse 8, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. Especially when the scoffers start to crank up their chorus. Where's the promise of his coming? Yeah, all you crazy Christians, you kept saying Jesus was coming. Guess what? He ain't here yet. Do not forget this one thing. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Here's something that human beings often tend to forget. Time is totally irrelevant with God. He is the great I am, not the great I was or I will be. He is the eternal one, and eternity knows no time. We can't even really comprehend what it means to live forever. But it's going to be pretty cool. Real cool. But there's no time in God's eternal kingdom. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the great I am. He is the eternal one. In light of this, what Peter is saying here, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, it's only been two days since Jesus ascended into heaven. Two, two days for us goes by in a flash, does it not? Everything for God is right now. There is no past, present, or future. And guess what? If we want to use a little analogy here, two days, a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. And so if we use that comparison and we say, it's only been two days since Jesus went up to prepare a place for us. What happened on the third day? He rose from the dead, did he not? I believe we're right at the third day. This is, we're in the early part of the third millennium since Christ ascended into heaven. I believe the third day is at hand. 
And God wants us to believe that, by the way. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. We've got a couple things here. We've got a promise, and we have the fact that he's not slow about it. What is the promise? John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. So there's that basic premise and presumption. Hebrews chapter 11, without faith it's impossible to please God because you must believe that he exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. That's the starting point. Jesus said, you believe God, disciples. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise. Now, from the human perspective, 2,000 years is a long time. But to God, it's just a couple of days. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Oh, God's so mean. He's so horrible. No. God, God's so-called delay is the result of his patience with the human race. We saw what happened in Genesis chapter 6 when his patience ran out. The flood. The Bible says his patience is going to run out again. So we need to thank God each and every day for his patience and the fact that he has waited 2,000 years because we wouldn't be here. What if God would have destroyed the world 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago? We would have never had a chance to be born and come to know God, become a child of God, and receive the precious gift of eternal life. I don't know about you, but I like living, and I'm really going to like living forever. Sadly, there are people who don't like living, and they need Jesus really bad. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Again, his so-called delay is the result of his patience with the human race, not willing that any should perish. If God's so loving, why does he send people to hell? He doesn't. You can either buy your own ticket to hell, or you can receive the free ticket that he's offering you to go to heaven. Jesus paid the price for your ticket. Oh, no, I don't want that ticket. I want to do it my way. I want to be the master and commander, the captain of my ship. Well, I hope your ship has asbestos sails. I hope it's an ironclad ship with asbestos sails, because where you're going, you're going to need it. God never sends anyone to hell. We send ourselves by rejecting his offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. And don't let anybody tell you different. He's not willing that any should perish. Here's the amazing thing. It's sad because God has given man free will. And when somebody gets saved, the free will of God and the free will of man intersect. And you are chosen and you are predestined because God knew before the creation of the world that you were going to receive him. He also knew before the creation of the world those that would not receive him, and yet he still graciously puts the message out there anyway. It's our choice. It's our choice. And if God's perfect will were, were done, not one person would perish in the fires of hell. That's the love of God. 
For God so loved the world, right? He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's not willing that any should perish because He's also not willing that we would be a bunch of mind-numbed robots and puppets on a string. We all know that that's not real love. We know there are sometimes unusual people, strange people, who will try to take someone captive and convince them that they love me whether they do or not. God won't do that. He wants you to love him because you've chosen to do so. And sadly, because of that, though his perfect will is that none would perish, because he allows us to choose, many will perish. But that all should come to repentance. So there, there's the qualifier. Yeah, God's not willing that any should perish. And the way we avoid perishing is we have to repent of our sins. His desire is that all people would repent of their sins and receive a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I can't do that. Why not? Are you a sinner? Oh, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. Pass the buck. Rationalize, justify. Yeah, but all you have to do is admit you're a sinner. Confess your sins before God. Repent, and you get saved. You get to live forever. Well, I don't know. I have to think about that one. Really? That's a no-brainer. All you're doing is admitting what God already knows and you know in your own heart deep down inside. If you could shut down your pride and humble yourself and just admit who you really are. Oh, that's just too hard. I'd rather just point the finger at other people. I'd rather blame other people for my condition. Well, I got somebody you could blame, Adam and Eve. They started it all. Plunged the whole human race into sin. But that's, that, that's spilt milk. That's water under the bridge. We've got to deal with the here and now, right? Here and now is, the fact is, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. What's I'm a pepper? I'm a sinner. I'm a pepper. You're a pepper. Well, wouldn't you like to be a sinner too? No. <laughs> I'd like to be a saint. And I can be if I repent. And here's the deal. God's desire is that all people would repent of their sins and receive a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we already discussed at some point, just as in the days of Noah, he must close the door. You know how people are always trying to get you to buy something by telling you this, this sale's only good for today. If you come back tomorrow, you won't get this price on this car, this timeshare whatever it might be. It's on sale. It's your last chance. Well, the thing is, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the return of Christ, when it comes to the completion of God's plan, we already saw that the door closed in the days of Noah. The door to the ark was closed, and only Noah and his family were allowed to enter in. Does that mean that God didn't love the rest of those people who perished? No. But they had their chance. They had their opportunity. God was patient. He was long-suffering. 120 years it took Noah and his sons to build that boat. They're preaching the gospel the whole time. Genesis 7:15. They went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, that would include Noah's wife, his sons, and their wives, 
male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The door is closed. Noah and his family became the only recipients of God's grace because they're the only ones who received it. They were the only ones who responded to God's message of salvation and love and forgiveness. Revelation 3.20, Jesus writes to the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. So here again, who is he reaching out to? The church! Because if the church is lost, everybody's lost. If you can't find the truth at your local church, where are you going to get it? I know you can pick up your Bible and read it, and that works too. But God has chosen to reach this world through His church, through the body of Christ. We are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And Jesus said, if you hide your light under a bushel, it's worthless. If the salt has lost its savor, it is worthless. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Can you imagine... Jesus having to stand outside the door of his own church and knock, trying to get in? Oh, Jesus, hey, just take it easy. Why don't you go fishing with Peter or something? You know, Jesus, we just want to, we'll talk about you in here, but we'd really rather you not actually come in. Because you might make us talk about things we don't want to talk about. You might make us confront things we don't want to confront. You might want to make us be people we don't want to be. Hey, guys, Jesus is at the door. Oh, act like we're not here. <laughs> Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And you know what? For many people, they don't have to act like they're not there because they're not there. I think that went over your heads. <laughs> or maybe it didn't. I wasn't talking about you guys, by the way, but there are people in churches that aren't there. They're on their cell phones. They're listening to the football game with their earbuds. They're already thinking about what they're going to have for lunch. They're thinking about where they're going to go this afternoon with their ATV. They're thinking about how many games their kids have to play. And that's if they even make it there. Man, he's really getting down today, ain't he? Well, I only get you one day a week. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. See, God is with the church, the corporate church, corporate worship, the body of Christ. But what he's saying is, if the church as a whole has rejected me, I'll still come into that individual who invites me in. Maybe the church as a whole won't invite me in, but if you invite me in, I'll come in and dine with you and you with me. There's a lot of spiritual analogies involving doors, open doors and closed doors. God put Noah and his family in the ark and shut the door. That was the last opportunity for the rest of the people on planet Earth. Today, sadly, many have closed the door to Christ and they need to open that door before it's too late. It's up to each man, woman, boy and girl to open the door to Jesus. And I talked about this idea of, hey, it's only on sale today, man. If you walk away, you won't get this deal tomorrow. How many of you ever heard that one? Now, today I'll sell you this car for X amount. If you come back tomorrow, it's going to be this much more, right? But here's the deal with Jesus. 
We don't know. Every single moment of our lives is subject to the plan and purposes of God. We don't know from one moment to the next whether we're even going to be here anymore. So as the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. We also don't know at what moment the church is going to be raptured. And if you're not ready, you'll be left here to live and probably die in the tribulation. You think it's hard to make a decision for Christ now? Can you imagine how hard it's going to be to do that in the tribulation? The Bible says that those who do will be beheaded for their faith. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? In light of things we see happening in the world today, the whole idea specifically, not crucified like Christ, not crucified like Peter in the early church and other Christians who were hung on crosses, but for some reason during the tribulation, it'll be, be beheading. That'll give you some pause to reflect, will it not? It's incumbent upon every man, woman, boy, and girl to open the door to Jesus, here and now, before it's too late. The title of the message, which I did not give you at the beginning, and it's taken from an old Paul McCartney song, Someone's Knocking at the Door. Do yourself a favor and let him in. Let's stand. Father God, I don't know about anybody else here today, but I'm totally in awe of you. I'm in awe of your word. I'm in awe of your creation. I'm in awe of your son, Jesus Christ. I'm in awe of the fact that you reached out to me, a vile, wretched sinner. Gave me the opportunity to know you, to live for you, and to live with you forever. Father God, so often we forget, and Peter's wanting to remind us of what's really important, what really matters. This life is but a vapor. It's but a mist. It's but a moment. And then comes eternity. Father, I want to pray for anyone here today who might not feel as though they are ready for eternity. Maybe they've not truly made a decision for Christ, a commitment to Christ. Maybe they tried the God thing. Maybe they didn't. But today, as a result of hearing this teaching, they realize they need salvation. They need to be born again by the Spirit of God. I pray that you would draw them by your Spirit. They'd come up, pray with one of the members of the prayer team, receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. Pray for anybody else who's maybe dabbling, one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity, one foot in the church. Lord, that they would step down totally and fully on your side, that they would commit or recommit their life to you today, make a fresh start, and become one of your true disciples who is willing to take up their cross and follow you. And Lord, for anyone else, maybe having health issues, whatever it might be, mental, emotional, spiritual issues, financial issues, Lord, whatever our problem is, we know that you have the answers. So we pray that anyone who needs prayer today would come forward and receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we close this service today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.